This faith-affirming podcast is a production of Latter-day Radio for the enlightenment and illumination of its audience. Originally broadcast on KLO Radio in Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Latter-day Radio. I'm Greg Gerard, and we're here on KLO 1430. Today, I'm with Jonathan Neville, author, retired attorney, and uh, a lecturer. And I heard his lecture at the first time at the Davis County Convention Hall when I went to the Firm Foundation Expo. And I think I'd like to take us back to the very beginning, Jonathan, and let's talk about your road to Damascus experience. How did you become a Heartland Hopewell uh, aficionado or fan or expert now? How did that start and what brought you to uh, the place you are currently on your own journey? Well, I guess I could start by uh, explaining how I got interested in this topic as a whole. When I was about 14 or 15, my family was in Greece and we were visiting in Athens and my father told us that uh, when we were on the Acropolis, he pointed down to Mars Hill. We went down there and he said, this is where the Apostle Paul taught. And it was the first time in my life that I ever related the scriptures to the real world. Wow. And I had never really even paid much attention to it. And so I read the account of Paul on Mars Hill. And from then on, I started reading the scriptures and wondering where all the different events took place. And since then, I've been to Israel several times and throughout Paul's travels and so on. And with the Book of Mormon, it was similar. I, um, as, as a kid in seminary, of course, I was kind of taught the the idea that the Book of Mormon took place in all of the Americas or in Central America. It was a little vague. When I went to BYU, I was I had a class from John Sorensen, and um, later I went to uh, my first job was as a clerk to the Supreme Court down in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and there was an archaeologist there who was doing a peer review of John's book, Ancient Setting from mm-hmm. the Book of Mormon, and so and he made me a copy, and I kind of went through it with him, and I was convinced by John Sorensen's book that the Book of Mormon took place in Central America for many years. For decades, actually. And so are probably a majority of Latter-day Saints at this point. Exactly, because that's what the, the people at BYU have been teaching, and as well as in uh, the church educational system, CES. And so probably for 30 years, I went along with that. I, I bought all the books that I could find that were published on the topic. Uh, even when I was on my mission in France, I bought a book about the Mayans in French to mm-hmm. tell the French people about. I did firesides about the Book of Mormon in Central America. And then, I, I guess it was about five years ago, maybe ten years ago, I went to a, an event uh, by Wayne May, and he presented this idea of the North American setting. Which probably set you back and said, whoa, I haven't heard this before. Exactly. Yeah, it was all new to me. I had the same experience. I I haven't seen Wayne May, but I've seen his his uh, YouTube videos and uh, piqued my interest. He's, yeah, same happened with me. And so I started exploring it, doing some due diligence. I didn't really have a lot of time to spend on it at that point because I was still working full time. And then, then about maybe five years ago, something like that, I went to another conference. And this was up in uh, Midway. And it was Rod Meldrum put it on, and he was talking more about this North American setting. One of the fellows there, one of the presenters, talked about the voyage 
across the Atlantic of a ship called the Phoenicia, mm -hmm. which was very interesting to me because I had never made sense of Lehigh crossing the Pacific Ocean. That's a long way to go. <laughs> it's a long way, and as far as I could find, there was no historical comparables. But this one crossing the Atlantic made a lot of sense to me. And so afterwards, I spent some time talking with him, and I began exploring it a little more. Well, at the same time, I was working on a series of, of legal thrillers, and one of them involved the uh, Native Americans kind of reclaiming their tribal lands. The book you were reading or a book you were writing? A book I was writing. Oh, fantastic. And so I was doing research for it. We need to compare some notes. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I wrote a book as well. Uh, time to plug my book? No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Well, I was uh, I, I was doing my research for this book about how could the Native Americans reclaim their land because of the U.S. government having violated the treaties and so on. And I wanted to talk to Rod a little more about that because he seemed to know about the Native Americans. And so I went and met with him, and he told me in order to really understand what he was saying, I should go on a tour to Ohio. And I thought, you know, I've traveled all over the world. I've, I've been to every continent, to all these ancient sites, and I'd never been to Ohio. Really. Ohio? Does that sound like a place where you'd find uh, the Sphinx or right. pyramids? or? Yeah, exactly. So I thought my expectations are pretty low for Ohio. <laughs> but I went on the tour with him, him and Wayne, and I was blown away by what I saw in the museums. Everything that the Book of Mormon talks about in terms of armaments and so on, you find right in these museums state and federal museums in the Midwest. And so it totally reversed my train of thought. It's not like there were people lined up to get into these museums. I imagine it wasn't like going to the Smithsonian in, in Washington, right? Not exactly. You're, you're right. They, they typically are, some of them are fairly small. Uh, the State Museum in Ohio is, is a pretty well-established one, but it has a lot of other things besides archaeology. So I came away from that trip puzzled, because for three decades or more of my life, I had been persuaded that the Book of Mormon took place in Central America. So I started researching it again and reevaluating my assumptions, and I, I came to the conclusion that Central America just didn't fit for a lot of reasons. So the next question I had, I asked Rod, why do we even start looking in Central America? And he told me that it was because of some articles in the Times and Seasons that Joseph Smith wrote about um, the Book of Mormon, Zarahemla in Guatemala, and the ruins in Central America being built by the Nephites. Well, I looked into those articles, and the first thing I noticed is they were all anonymous. But they weren't necessarily written by Joseph Smith. Exactly. And so I wanted to know who wrote them. And there had been an article published that did kind of a stellometry approach that indicated that um, there were three candidates to have written those articles. It was Joseph Smith, John Taylor, and Wilford Woodruff. And of those three, uh, Joseph Smith was the closest, but even these anonymous articles were outliers. And that even piqued my interest more. I thought, why would they focus on those three men as the only possible authors of these articles? So I, I dug into the, the Times and Seasons, the church history at the time, and it, one of the first things I realized was Joseph Smith himself had written letters to the editor of the Times and Seasons to have them published. And this was in September of 1842, right when these anonymous articles were being published. And I thought, wait a minute, if he was the actual editor, 
Why would he send letters to himself to be published? It didn't make sense. And then when I looked at it more closely, I realized that uh, the letters that he sent in are now Doctrine and Covenants section 127 and 128 in our scriptures. And he sent those in because they were important. He wanted the saints to know him, but he was not the publisher. And so, and at this, at this particular period of time, both Wilford Woodruff and John Taylor were also out sick. So they weren't the authors either. Yeah, well, they weren't there to publish it, at least. Yeah, mm-hmm. And then I looked into it some more, and it turned out there's another newspaper, a Mormon newspaper in Nauvoo being published on the same printing press in the same printing shop called The Wasp. I had never even heard of The Wasp. So I looked into that, and that was published by Joseph Smith's brother, William Smith. And as I started comparing the editorial content from the two newspapers, there was a lot of crossover between the two. Mm-hmm. And I, I, have, I ended up writing an entire book about this, actually three books about it, because to get into all the detail. Because as soon as I realized Joseph was not actually editing the newspaper, he was listed at the end of the newspaper as editor, publisher, and printer. Or it, it, what it said was, the Times and Seasons is edited, published, and printed by Joseph Smith. Nobody thought Joseph Smith was down in the print shop running the presses, so he obviously wasn't the actual printer. Sort of like how we do today, published by the Corporation of the President. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I figured if he wasn't really the printer, then why do we assume he was actually the editor? And throughout his life, Joseph Smith was not known as a literary man. We have very few manuscripts in his handwriting. You can see them all on Joseph Smith papers. And it just didn't make sense that he would be actually editing other people's work when he had hardly time to write his own. So I ended up... Uh, concluding that a man named Benjamin Winchester was the actual author of these articles. And that's a long explanation I don't have time to get into. But the point was that these articles did not originate with Joseph Smith. And therefore, it seemed to me that the entire premise for the Central American, Mesoamerican theory was flawed. It was based on a mistake in church history. It was speculation by a man whom we really don't know. We don't know much about Benjamin Winchester, for sure. But one thing we do know about him was that a month before he died, Joseph Smith said of Benjamin Winchester that he was rotten at heart and would injure the church as much as he could. And That's my, not a very good thing to put on your resume. <laughs> not exactly. No. And in my opinion, <clears throat> Winchester was successful in injuring the church significantly by promoting this whole Central American thing. So I went from that... Uh, historical research, I faced a lot of opposition from the Mesoamerican advocates at BYU. They were critical of my findings. They didn't want me to to publish about it, and and they refused to put a lot of my materials in, in their publications. And so I thought, well, it's one thing to say Joseph Smith did not write about Central America, but it's another thing to figure out where the Book of Mormon actually did take place. And that's what led me to inquire more about the geography issues. Around this same time period, I came across um, a letter that Oliver Cowdery had written, which was designated as Letter 7. He wrote a series of eight historical letters, or I call them the First Gospel Topics Essays, and they were published in The Messenger and Advocate in Kirtland, Ohio, in 1834 and 1835. These letters are really fascinating because they were responding, in part, to anti-Mormon criticism. One of the biggest criticisms was that the Book of Mormon was fiction. 
that Joseph Smith copied it from another source. So Solomon Spalding's manuscript or wherever it may have come from. Right. And so I, as I started looking at what, how jo Oliver Cowdery refuted that argument, in letter seven, he talks about certain facts that tie the Book of Mormon directly to North America. Specifically, he said it was a fact that the final battles of the Nephites and Jaredites took place at the Hilcomore in New York. So, Jonathan, you're talking about letter seven. How many letters were there in total? There were eight letters. Eight letters. And we have letter one at the end of the uh, Pearl of Great Price. It's a, it's a footnote. And I've read it many times. It's a, it's a wonderful explanation of the restoration from, from Oliver's point of view. Exactly. Oliver Cowdery was writing a series of facts to refute all the rumors that had been circulated about Joseph Smith. And one of them was he, he explained in detail how John the Baptist came, how the baptism took place, and so forth. And that is in the Pearl of Great Price. More faith-affirming podcast content from Latter-day Radio coming your way. Stick around. Earlier we were talking about his theory that the events described in the Book of Mormon took place in the upper Midwest of the U.S., not in Mesoamerica, and it has generated some controversy. But as you explained them to me, a lot of things made sense in regards to the prophetic statements of Joseph and Oliver and many others. Now you have a question you're posing that you put as a title of a book. Whatever happened to the golden plates? So Jonathan, we're all ears. What did happen to the golden plates? Okay. Well, the, the traditional story that we've all been taught was that Joseph Smith found a set of gold plates in the Hill Cumorah in a stone box that had been prepared by Moroni uh, 1,400 years earlier. And the box is really interesting as a side note that they said the box was constructed with stone and cement. And so the only known Nephite cement that we have is in the Hillcomore in New York. The, all the rest of the speculation about cement is, is ambivalous. You could, you could say it's in Central America, North America, whatever, but the only known Nephite cement we have is on that hill in New York. Uh, so he got this set of plates. He ended up taking them down to Harmony, Pennsylvania to stay with his father-in-law, and then he and Emmett moved into a little house of their own there. And that's where he translated the first 116 pages that Martin Harris lost. And then the following year, Oliver Cowdery came down and they translated from the Book of Mosiah through the end of uh, Moroni and the title page in Harmony. And then they went up to Fayette, New York, where David Whitmer lived with his father and translated First Nephi through Words of Mormon up there. And so the traditional narrative was that all these plates were in the box in the Hilcomora that Moroni constructed. And somewhere along the line, 116 pages of the translated works were lost. Right. And, and there's some discussion about whether it was really 116 pages or not, which we don't need to get into, but it's all always been referred to as the 116 pages, which reflected Mormon's abridgment of the original book of Lehi. Which was in the big plates. Right. And so that was in this, the set of abridged plates. Well, one, one thing that I do when I approach a, an issue is I, if I have uh, competing theories, 
I try to see which theory predicts what we discover best. And so in this case, if the Hill Cumorah is in New York versus the Hill Cumorah being in Mesoamerica, which of those scenarios explains what happened in church history? And let me give you an example that kind of led to my conclusion that there are actually two different sets of plates, that, that the plates Joseph got from Moroni were not the only plates that he translated. What happened is in, when Joseph Smith was in Harmony, Pennsylvania, he, when he was using the Urim and Thummim, he looked on the plates one day, and instead of having the translation given to him, he received a commandment to write to David Whitmer to tell him to come and pick them up him and Oliver. And so Oliver Cowdery knew David Whitmer. Joseph had never met him, but Oliver Cowdery knew him. So Oliver wrote to David Whitmer and said, can you come pick us up? And, and these accounts are pretty well known in church history. There's some new films about them and so forth, so I won't get into the detail. But before they left Harmony, Joseph gave the place to a divine messenger. Then when they, when they left, David Whitmer came down, picked them up. They left on the wagon. They were heading up to Fayette, and they met a guy on the side of the road. And David Whitmer stopped and asked him if he wanted a ride to Fayette. And the man said, no, I'm going to Cumorah. David Whitmer had never heard of Cumorah. He grew up in that area. He did business with the farms in the area. He'd never heard of Cumorah. He didn't know what the guy was talking about. So he turned to Joseph, and Joseph said, later said that this was the messenger who was taking the plates with him to Cumorah. And when I read that account, I thought, that doesn't make any sense, because if they were translating the plates in harmony and they were going to translate them in Fayette, why would this divine messenger be taking them to the Hill Cumorah? It just didn't fit. And so I researched a little bit more, and it turns out David Whitmer had related this event several times. And one of the times was to uh, Elder Joseph S. Smith, who made a formal report to the Quorum of the Twelve about his interview with David Whitmer and included this uh, account of meeting the messenger who was going to Cumorah. And he said that uh, David Whitmer remembered this because it was the first time he'd ever heard the word Cumorah. Of course, at the time, the only two people who had heard the word Cumorah were Joseph and Oliver because they had just translated the last chapters of the Book of Mormon where the Hill Cumorah is talked about. So I started thinking, well, why would the messenger take these plates to Cumorah? And that's when it dawned on me that the depository, Mormon's depository of original plates from all the Nephite records was in the Hill Cumorah. And Joseph had finished translating all the plates he'd gotten from uh, Moroni. The Lord told him in Doctrine and Covenants section 10 that he was going to have to translate the plates of Nephi. And the, the key point here to understand is Joseph did not have the plates of Nephi. All he had was Mormon's abridgment supplemented by Moroni. You're talking big plates? Well, we call them the small plates now. Okay. He, he, if, if you recall the title page, well, this is interesting too. And I know this is a lot of detail. That's why I ended up writing a whole book about it to explain all the detail. But there's, there's a couple of key points you can, you can understand here on the radio and, and think about. Number one is the title page, Joseph said, was the last leaf of the plates. And he translated that in harmony. So he had translated all the plates to the end in harmony. And then he gave these plates to this divine messenger who took them to Cumorah, which makes sense because Joseph was finished with those plates. He wanted them out of his hands. Well, he wanted. <laughs> well, he, one idea yeah. is that he was, didn't want to transport them because he didn't want to get robbed or something. 
But the other, the main point is he was finished with them. I mean, there's nothing more to do. The Lord said, don't go back and translate the place of Lehi, the first part that was lost in the 116 pages. So he had nothing else to do with them. So then what I, what I realized was when you read the title page, it tells you what was in those plates that Moroni put in the stone box. It says it was an abridgment of the record of the Nephites, abridgment of the record of the Jaredites, and then it was sealed by Moroni, meaning he added his little commentary at the end, including the Book of Ether. And that was it. There was no mention of any original plates whatsoever. And yet, we know that the Book of Mormon we have today had First Nephi through the words of Mormon. That was a translation of original plates. Those were not abridged plates. They were not mentioned in the title page. And so they could not have been in the place that Moroni put in the hill climb. I see. So this messenger took the, the original plates, I call them the harmony plates because they were all translated in harmony, put, took them back to the depository in the hill Cumora, picked up the small plates there, and brought those to Fayette. And that's why Joseph Smith translated the small plates in Fayette and not the abridgment. Okay. So in, another way to look at it is, there were harmony plates and Fayette plates, two completely different sets of plates. They had never been together. They had never been together. Now, it, people always say, well, wait a minute, right in words of Mormon, Mor, Mor, sorry, excuse me, Mormon says that he put the plates with the other plates. But a couple of verses later, he says King Benjamin put those same plates with his plates, and yet Mormon had to search all through the records to find them. So that phrase, to put with, does not mean to attach. And he used the small plates of Nephi to guide his abridgment, as he says in Words of Mormon, so that he could show that all the prophecies were fulfilled and so forth. So he's thumbing through the small plates while he's writing on the big plates. Exactly. He's looking at, mm, well, there's something. Now we call that copy and paste. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot okay. easier for us these days, isn't it? Copy and paste. It was also he knew that Nephi had predicted certain things to happen, and he wanted to make sure he showed that those things actually happened. And Nephi said a couple of times, both Nephi, Nephi, Mormon, and Moroni, uh, Moroni said, I don't know why I'm including this in here, yeah. but I know it's for a wise purpose. Yeah, that's right. Because the Lord has the ability, talking about God the Father, has the ability to look into the future and, and plan for our salvation accordingly. Well, and for a long time, people thought that those passages you're referring to refer to Martin Harris losing the 116 pages. But that doesn't make sense for all kinds of reasons, philosophical as well as practical. Instead, the wise purpose was that Mormon was using those small plates to show in his abridgment that all the prophecies had been fulfilled. Oh, I that's see. What, that's what they were referring to. Okay. So, and there's a lot more detail in this about the words of Mormon and, and how much of it we think was from the, uh, the, the left, part left over from the 116 pages. Mm -hmm. so we won't get into that right now. The, the key point that people need to understand is that there were two different sets of plates. There was the harmony plates that Joseph got from Moroni, from the stone box, and there were the Fayette plates that he got from the messenger that had been in the depository in the Hill Cumorah. And this is just yet another validation, so to speak, or another way to, to show that Oliver Cowdery was correct in letter seven when he talked about the Hill Cumorah being right there in New York. And this is another way he knew that that was the case. Because he was in the wagon. He was right there. Yeah, he met the guy, too. He saw the messenger. And then later, Joseph said he got the, um, the Fayette plates from the messenger in a garden up there in Fayette. The guy brought him over. 
He showed them to David Whitmer's mother, so she was one of the witnesses of the plates. But these were the, the plates of Nephi, not the abridged plates of Mormon that she would have seen and that Joseph had there in Fayette. Excuse me, these are things that Oliver was not speculating right. about, first-hand knowledge of them. Exactly. And there's a lot more uh, evidence that this is what happened that, again, we don't have time to get into right now on the radio, but there, it's an exciting development in church history because it ties up a lot of loose ends. Some of the early critics were saying that, well, the plates couldn't be real because people described them differently. They said they had different weights. Some said 40 pounds, some 60 pounds, some had different dimensions. That all makes perfect sense if they were seeing different sets of plates, which I think they were. Hand me your book there so I can just take a look at the title. The title of your book is called What Happened to the Golden Plates? Whatever and, Happened. Oh, Whatever Happened to the Golden Plates? And you're selling it for, what's the price on there? Uh, the price depends on where you buy it. And there's digital versions, there's printed versions. I see. I don't, I, don't, I don't deal with the marketing part of it. But the, the other thing is I, I, I try to reduce the cost as much as possible by putting a lot of references online. So if you read the book, you can send an email. There's an automated thing that'll send you the additional references that if I had put in the book, it would have been twice as, as long. But I also, on my webpage, I have a diagram that explains how this all happened. In my presentations, I do it. And um, it's, it's, I think it's becoming more and more accepted because of all the loose ends in church history that it, that it ties up. Okay, well, thank you, Jonathan. We've come to the end of this segment here on Latter-day Radio. I'm sure they could go to your website and take a closer look at it, which sure. is where? Uh, Moroni's America is the name of the main website. Dot com? Yeah, moronisamerica.com. We're not done yet. More faith-affirming podcast content on its way. Stay with us. And we're continuing our conversation about church history, Book of Mormon lands, and where did these things take place. Now, last segment, we talked about a couple of different books you've written. One is Letter 7, the explanation. The other is Whatever Happened to the Golden Plates. But you've got another focus here on another book you've published, talking about this is the place. And we're not talking about Brigham Young and right. arriving in the valley, but rather... Mormons America, where did all of these things actually take place? Give us kind of a little background. How did these things coalesce in your own mind that you seem fairly convinced of your position? How did you okay. come to these conclusions? Well, I, I approached it really kind of using a scientific method because, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I've, for 30 years I believed in the Mesoamerican theory, and I accepted kind of the standard interpretations. And when I realized that the prophets have all taught Camorras in New York, and I believe the prophets, I thought, how does that fit with the geography? And so my wife was reading the Book of Mormon, and she made a list of 300 passages that refer to the geography. And she wanted to know where they all took place. Well, that's a big assignment. <laughs> I know. It was on your Saturday to-do list. Exactly. And I had to do that before I took the trash out, you know. <laughs> so I thought, uh, I, okay, I, I took it on as a project. I, didn't, I thought that people had been writing dozens of different geographies. John Sorensen did a great book kind of showing all the different theories. 
And I thought there's got to be a way to approach this that makes sense, that corroborates what the prophets have said. So she sent you off, and then she went shopping and did what you wanted because you was out of you were out of her hair for a while. Is uh, yeah, that it? Pretty much. I, actually, yeah. Let's, let's just leave it that way. <laughs> it, it took a while, and and there were some issues, you know, as I went through it. But I I I wanted to approach it from the beginning, fresh, with no preconceptions, other than Kamora being in New York. So I started with First Nephi, I went through the whole thing, and I made notes of, of alternative ways to interpret the text, and not just assuming that one way was the way to do it. Part of this was that I have some background. I used to study Greek and Latin, and there's a famous book in Greek called The Anabasis, where they talk about a war, and they, he describes the geography, and if you didn't have a map, you would never know what he was talking about. Hmm. And we don't have a map for the Book of Mormon. It's the same way with the Bible. If you, if you read the Bible and you don't refer to the Bible maps, but you try to draw your own map based on what they say in the Bible, you're clueless. You'll never come up with what we know to be Jerusalem and Egypt and all that, just because the directions are so vague. And the Book of Mormon is similar. So there are some specific geographical indicators, but even those are somewhat, um, they're subject to various interpretations. For like example... narrow neck of land. Yeah, narrow, everybody asks me, where's the narrow neck of land? And I always say it's in Ether 1020, because that's the only place it is <laughs> in the whole book. And everybody thinks that the small neck, the narrow passage, the narrow pass, and the narrow neck are all the same as a narrow neck of land. And my approach was to say, well, Mormon used different terms for each of those. I'm going to assume those are all different places. Even the narrow neck is different from the narrow neck of land. That's why he put of land as a, as a qualifier for narrow neck in Ether 1020. So when you approach that, it opens up a lot of more opportunities or, or variety of possibilities, let's say. So I started going through it, and I went back from, from Kimura. I said, okay, if Kimura's in New York, where were the Nephites and so on backing up? And then I also had in the back of my mind this idea that Lehi crossed the Atlantic. And that makes so much sense, partly because there's a Phoenicia ship that gives us a historical precedent, shows how it was done. There's also the Mulekites had to cross the Atlantic, and even the Mesoamerican advocates agree with that. Christopher Columbus crossed the Atlantic the same way. And if you look at the, how the, the winds and the currents are, all three of those groups, the Mulekites, the Lehi's group, and Columbus, all essentially follow the same place. They go down to the Canary Islands for the Mulekites in Columbus. Lehi would have gone up the west coast of Africa roughly to the Canary Islands, and then they all come over the same way. That's how Nephi, when he had his vision, he saw Columbus crossing the same route that he had crossed. That's how he recognized it was the promised land. Mm -hmm. um, so based on that, I assumed, okay, he probably landed somewhere in Florida, let's say. And from there... We, Nephi says that he went up, he, he left his brethren, he um, went up to a higher area that he called the land of Nephi, the city of Nephi, which I think is in Tennessee, Chattanooga area. A little interesting sidelight of that is, as I was working on a map here, I, said, I thought to myself, well, how would Lehi escape into the wilderness? Because if he was hacking his way through the jungle in Central America or the forest in, in southeastern United States, it'd be easy to follow him. So the only way he could escape into the wilderness was going on a river. If you're, if you're going upstream on a river and there's all these tributaries come, coming down, 
you can lose your pursuers real fast because they won't know which tributary you went up. Mm-hmm. So the only way it made sense for me that he could escape is going up a river. And I've, I found a river on the map that looked plausible to me, and I, I kind of marked it off. And then I thought to myself, I wonder what the name of this river was, because I was using a, a map of the topography that didn't have any names on it. And the name of the river was the Flint River. And if you remember, when he left his brothers, he said that their hearts were hard as flint. And it occurred to me that Hmm. he was using that metaphor because he was on a river that had flint. And that's what made him think of it. Anyway, so he went up to Tennessee area, Chattanooga area. There's Lookout Mountain, and there's an enormous archaeological reserve right in downtown Chattanooga that's a federally protected land, but they don't have the funds to explore. But I've walked through it myself, Hmm. and it's full of artifacts. And there's, you can even see traces of mounds and things in there. So, it, And there's other museums and things in the area that have artifacts that date to Book of Mormon time period. So it's a nice fit. And then I thought, well, just as an experiment, in Doctrine and Covenants 125, it's the Lord told Joseph Smith to build a city across from Nauvoo, across the river from Nauvoo, on the west side of the Mississippi River, and to name it Zarahemla. Now, it, it does not say that that was the ancient Zarahemla. But it does say to name it Zarahemla. And I thought that was really interesting because in the Book of Mormon and in the Doctrine and Covenants, it talks about the New Jerusalem. And what does the Lord say about the New Jerusalem? Or Ether, when he was explaining it to Coriantumr, he says it wasn't Jerusalem because that was the Jerusalem in the old world. This was a new Jerusalem, so they called it the New Jerusalem. The Lord did not tell Joseph Smith to call it the new Zarahemla. He said to call it Zarahemla. And to me, that's a strong indication that that was the ancient Zarahemla. Well, but it's not a sure thing. So I just plugged it into my map to see if it would fit. And then, you know, one of the things we talk about in Book of Mormon geography is the River Sidon and how, whether it flows north or south and all that stuff. And I thought, okay, it does make sense that when Mosiah went down to Zarahemla, he went down a river and it was a north-flowing river because Zarahemla was north of the land of Nephi. But it, where is there a north-flowing river in North America? And it turns out there's a north-flowing river called the Tennessee River that nobody ever seemed to have thought about because it goes right from the Chattanooga area, up, goes north but down. In other words, Chattanooga is higher in elevation. Elevation, it's going down. Yeah, yeah the elevation in Chattanooga is high. It's up in the Appalachian Mountains kind of. And it goes downstream, but it flows north to the Ohio River where it meets Illinois. And southern Illinois, I consider all of Illinois the land of Zarahemla. So Mosiah could go down from the city of Nephi, the land of Nephi, down to Zarahemla on a north-flowing river, and it fits perfectly. Hmm. The distinction is between the land of Zarahemla and the city of Zarahemla. If you read the text carefully, you realize there was no city of Zarahemla until you get into the the book of Alma. So throughout Mosiah, the people did not have a city of Zarahemla. They had a land of Zarahemla. But we don't know exactly where that those events took place other than that they were in the land of Zarahemla along the Sidon River. So this, this all started coming together, and I thought, this is incredible. It, it surpassed my expectations for the geography. And then we got into the issue of the West Sea, and no one could find a West Sea that fit this geography. And so I looked it up, you know, as a lawyer, I always wanted to define terms. So I looked up in Strong's Hebrew Concordance, what does the word see mean as it's translated in the Bible? And it gave a list of examples that had the 
the Sea of Galilee, the Red Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and then it said a mighty river, and it used the Nile River. And it turns out that both Isaiah and Nahum were translated, they used the word sea for the Nile River. And so the Hebrew connotation there is it refers to a large body of water, including a mighty river. So where is there a mighty river around the Mississippi? The Mississippi River is the, the mighty river that was called a sea. But you have to make a distinction. It was the lower Mississippi after the Ohio River comes in. This is kind of confusing if you're not looking at a map. And we have a, a, a detailed map book of all this if you're interested. It's Moronize America, the Maps Edition. That has about 100 pages of detailed maps explaining all this. But the point is that the lower Mississippi anciently was part of the Gulf of Mexico. And over the eons, or at least hundreds, thousands of years, the uh, upper rivers, the Missouri, Mississippi, and Ohio, brought so much silt down that they filled it in. Now it looks like a river. But right on Google Earth, you can see that it used to be part of the Gulf of Mexico. So to me, that made sense as a sea west. And there's even a verse in Alma, I won't cite chapter and verse right now, you can look it up, but a verse in Alma that refers to the West Sea South, which tells me there is also a West Sea North. And that fits into all this geography really well. So um, obviously talking about geography is a long topic, but what I'm trying to say here is that the descriptions in the text fit the North American setting perfectly. Or at least, let's say, very well. Because there's, there can always be differences of opinion about what a particular term means. But the overall geography fits perfectly. And it, it works so well with the teachings of the prophets about America being the promised land. The Mary, President Romney's comment about America's destiny, which focused on the Hill Cumorah in New York. Um, all these things fit so well that it was hard for me to actually believe that it fits so well because I didn't expect that. That's what we call the good news, right? Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> good so, news of the gospel. You know, I, I, I always come back to this. I emphasize that the only thing we know for sure is the Hill Camorra is in New York. Everything else is subject to our own study with archaeology, anthropology, geology, geography, the words of the text, and so on. And there's lots of possibilities that we should all be open to. I'm open to anybody's idea. I just insist that the Hill Camorra is in New York because I believe the prophets. Well, and I think it's important for us to we want to really believe the prophets, read the book that is the keystone of our religion, which is the Book of Mormon, right. which is the, the genesis for all of these discussions anyway. Jonathan, thank you so much. You've been listening to Latter-day Radio here on 1430 KLO World Class Talk. This podcast has been produced by Latter-day Radio. Visit latterdayradio.com for more information.